seconds, but I would be even sweatier right now. <laughs> All right, uh, we are going to jump into Luke chapter 19 tonight. And as we begin, uh, so part of the work that I do involves working with men who uh, hit their families. I don't know any other way to say it. At some point in time, they find themselves in the middle of a legal mess, which results in a court order that says that they have to attend six months of weekly sessions with me. And so every week on Monday morning, these guys, poor guys, spend 90 minutes going through a process of being challenged to become different people. The challenge of the work is that most of the men don't see themselves as having done anything wrong. They love to insist that there was a misunderstanding or that they're the victim of some woman that they refer to as crazy. Some of them change, but in the work that I do, we have to soberly acknowledge that 90% of men who come to one of these groups don't change. They end up reoffending. Which leads to a really big question that some people like to ask, and most people are too polite to ask why do the work? Right? I mean, it's pretty much pointless. To mix it up a little bit tonight, as we start, I'm going to tell you the end at the beginning, all right? I believe that Jesus dislikes violence in all of its forms, and that he wants us to aspire to his eternal perfect kingdom, his eternal perfect reality in which violence doesn't exist, even today, when we live in the tension of the here and now, of this moment. And so we jump into Luke 19, page 878, if you're with me. Uh, later, I'll have a section, the next section, and we'll read it straight out of the text, and it'll be overhead. Uh, but we're going to start by looking at Zacchaeus. You probably have heard the story of Zacchaeus, right? Somebody sing it for me. It was a noble, it was a valiant effort. <laughs> yeah, you got the summary. All right. Cliff notes for the win. All right. So, yeah, Zacchaeus, the wee little man. Zacchaeus was like a, this really complex guy who was way more than just a small person. He was someone who was seen as a traitor to his people. Zacchaeus would have been like the scum of his society. Everybody would have looked down on him. And maybe he was a lot like the guys that I work with. And so Jesus shows up in the first 10 verses here of the text, and he does this back and forth hospitality thing where he almost invites himself to Zacchaeus' house, and Zacchaeus is like, sure, come on over. Because like, I don't have very many guests. They all hate me. And Jesus says, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down from that tree. 
And this is in verse 5. For I must stay at your house today. And Zacchaeus is so moved by the presence of Jesus that he declares himself a changed man, complete with the disbursement of the wealth that he had unjustly gained by robbing his Jewish relatives on behalf of the Roman Empire. So he got rich by ripping people off, and he said, I'm going to give the money back, and I'm going to make a difference with my life. And Jesus has a response to this. In verse 9, he says, Today, salvation has come to this house, to Zacchaeus' house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man, that's referring to himself, Jesus referring to himself, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. N.T. Wright puts it like this, We're almost there. The prophets have spoken of the fate that awaits the Son of Man, that's Jesus, but his mission is not just to suffer and die, but rather through that fate to search out and to rescue the lost sheep. He has gone in to spend time with sinner, will soon change to he's gone out to die with the brigands or the criminals, and the same reason will underlie both. This is what N.T. Wright is saying. The Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. It's as clear as what Jesus told us in verse 9. Another guy who wrote a commentary, he does this, all this studying of the scriptures. He says, uh, his name is Justo Gonzalez. He says, Zacchaeus stands in contrast with the fool. That was a person in Luke chapter 12, way back those weeks ago. And uh, so Zacchaeus stands in contrast with the fool that thought his possessions were truly his. And he stands in contrast with the ruler from last week, from chapter 18, who was saddened because he wished to hold on to what he had. Zacchaeus, the third member of this trio, Zacchaeus was the one who was unworthy. And Zacchaeus recognized that what was his wasn't actually his. By recognizing that what was his, his wealth, wasn't actually his, it was God's to be dispersed to people in need. Jesus said that Zacchaeus received salvation. It's kind of a wild story. And then he goes on to another wild story. And I'm just going to read it from the text because I don't know how you summarize this. And Jesus told it as good as it gets. So starting in verse 12, it'll be overhead, or we're looking at page 878. He said, therefore, that's Jesus, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return, calling ten of his servants, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. 
And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit, and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him, and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Wow. Wow. That's a lot, don't you think? I mean, and I want to know what happened with the other seven of them because the story started out saying that there were ten servants that were brought and that he gave them ten minas. Like, what happened to the other, or that he gave them minas? What happened to the other seven? Like, I don't even know. Throughout a lot of American Christianity, a lot of people have read this passage and been like, yeah, you know, Jesus is the kind of guy. He doesn't play games. Produce multiply, harder, better, faster, stronger. But Jesus isn't telling a story about himself. If anything, he's telling a story about a guy a lot like Zacchaeus. Actually, Jesus is probably telling this parable based off of a history lesson of something that had happened in the last 30 years or so in his world. In their commentaries, N.T. Wright and Justo Gonzalez refer to a Jewish guy named Archelaus. He went to Rome to request that the Caesar would confirm his title as the king over this region after his dad, who had been the king, died. And there were a whole bunch of people who lived in this region who were like, Archelaus would be such a bad ruler that they followed him 1,400 miles to Rome in order to complain and beg Caesar not to let this guy be their king, right? Because they were pretty sure he was going to be a rotten dude a lot like this. So Jesus is telling us how the kings of the world behave towards their citizens. But the opposite of that, Jesus... David Garland writes, Jesus goes as an anointed king who will not dish out punishment to those who would resist him and do away with him, but will instead appeal to God that they would be forgiven. Jesus is approaching Jerusalem knowing his death will be coming a a week or so away. And yet, 
he tells a story that is the contrast of who he is to set the stage to recognize that he's not the one coming to bring violence, but that he will endure the violence that it takes, that he has to go through in order to set God's people free. And T. Wright says, Jesus is not just speaking about God, God's kingdom, or God's return to Zion, to the holy hill, to Jerusalem. Jesus is embodying it. Does anybody know what the word embody means? To act away, right? Like, if someone is joyful, and they embody the idea of joy and everything about them is filled with joy, right? Or if someone is fiercely competitive and everything they do is, is competitive and strong and, and focused, they embody that competitiveness. Jesus, Jesus embodies God's kingdom on earth. So there's this out there somewhere reality of God's eternal perfect kingdom, this place that we can barely see on the horizon as people who follow after Jesus. It's heaven, the place that we all aspire to be one day with God. Then there's this reality that Jesus is the perfect representation of the king, of that kingdom, and that's what we see on the horizon. Jesus is the perfect representation of God's kingdom on earth. Next, we jump into a section, verses 28 through 40, in the heading of my Bible, yours too, if you're using one of these yellow ones, says the triumphal entry. This is the Palm Sunday passage, the week before Easter, uh, when we wave the palm branches and we say, Hosanna in the highest, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Luke tells the story in such a way that the disciples source this unridden colt, bring it to Jesus, put their coats on it instead of a saddle. They lay coats on the road as Jesus approaches the city. I'm not sure how that went. I'm guessing that it was like this weird, like they lay them all down and they go run back and like this circle around. I don't have any idea how it went for sure, but it just sounds tedious and crazy. And yet they got Jesus to the city of Jerusalem. His journey had been toward Jerusalem, and now Jesus has arrived. But as we've discussed so many other times, Jesus' kingdom is upside down. Today we can look back and recognize that Jesus wasn't coming into the city to overthrow and overtake it in violence. But instead, he was coming to present himself as the one who would defeat violence, sin, and death by going through it into God's victory. So N.T. Wright asks, and I don't like this question, are we ready to sing a psalm of praise, but only as long as Jesus seems to be doing what we want? The long and dusty pilgrim way of our lives gives most of us plenty of time to sort out our motives for following Jesus in the first place. 
In verses 41 through 48, Luke ends the chapter with Jesus weeping as he approaches Jerusalem. And then he cleanses the temple by scattering those who were using it for self-promotion rather than drawing people to God. Referring to Jesus' tears, N.T. Wright suggests, now here Jesus weeps over the city, but there's no one to console him. This is particularly noteworthy for us because Jesus recognizes the future that should be, but that cannot come into fulfillment. Jesus cries when he sees that the story should have had a different ending than the one that is being written. As the king of an eternal perfect kingdom who knows what it's like to live within the confines of a place that is free not only from violence, but that is filled with all of the plenty and the beauty and the goodness and the truth that any of us could ever imagine. Jesus has now come to this place where he sees through the eyes of that perfect king a brokenness a sin, a pain, a death that doesn't exist in the kingdom that he rules and will rule. And yet he's come here and he recognizes and he sees the reality of brokenness and sin and pain and death in order to show you and me and those people in that day, his disciples and all of the others, that there really is a better and truer way that the eternal perfect kingdom can be aspired to on this side of our last breath. The temple of Jesus' day had become a place where faith in the promises and the goodness of God were no longer necessary. Jesus went in and he cleaned the temple with the same awareness of God's goodness and love that caused him to cry and weep over the city. Gonzalez writes, in the gospel, Jesus goes to the temple not to offer sacrifices, but to oppose what is being done in it. Not to be cleansed by a sacrifice but to cleanse the temple in what amounts to a sign that the price of such cleansing will be his own sacrifice. Worship had become a formula, this cruel process that had no good news to offer to those who would seek God. It was just something you'd do to hope that God took pleasure in you which brings us back to the beginning. Why do I continue to believe that change can happen in men who choose violence, even though I know it's rare? For me, it's the belief that giving up, that washing my hands of the matter, would equal accepting, believing that violence wins. And call me crazy, but you'll never convince me otherwise. The whole point of what Jesus did on this earth was to stand against the brokenness and the loss that is our lived experience. Through death and resurrection, 
Jesus changed the story so that violence doesn't win forever. And I know that we're all able to be here in this space and to sort of like get bored by the guy talking on the platform. And in some ways, maybe boredom is a little bit better than feeling the overwhelm of the emotion that a lot of our friends are feeling out there, right? And yet today, right now, believing that violence won't win seems really impossible on this side of the death of Saray and Ashley. Until Sunday of this week, I'd never walked into Timberwood Church and felt a heaviness. It's like there was just always this like pervasive sense of joy in the space. But we were broken. And all of us feel it. Just like when Amanda began by talking from 1 Corinthians 12, right, about the body feeling the hurts of the body. It's like violence hovers over this week. And death right now feels utterly victorious. But here's what I believe. Just as Jesus wept over Jerusalem, he wept over a UTV accident in central Illinois on Saturday night. Just as Jesus cleansed the temple in Jerusalem, he will return to this earth to right the wrongs in this world and to make all things new. And on the last day, Saray and Ashley will know the resurrection life that Jesus won by going through the violence. I believe that Jesus dislikes violence in all its forms. And he wants us to aspire toward an eternal perfect reality in which violence doesn't exist even while we live in the tension of the here and now. Will you pray with me? Jesus, I pray that you would walk with us in these days as some of us are really feeling a lot and some of our friends are feeling even more. As our community, this body has pains in parts of it and is broken. As we seek your face, as we go from here, as we meet in our groups, as we talk through questions, would you move in us and would we leave this season of our lives as a people who are more dedicated to being representatives of your kingdom in the here and now? Would you turn our hearts and our lives against the violence and the brokenness of sin and death that still exist in this world? And would you cause us to be a people who live life and who find our life in you, trusting you with the glimmer of hope that as the king on the horizon 
coming into focus, bringing an eternal perfect kingdom that we will one day stand with you in its fullness. Walk with us, we pray. Heal our hearts. Help us grieve. Bring us closer to you in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, that's the deal. I'm, ah, here's, here comes the boss. <laughs> All right, you guys know how your groups work, so head on out.